Welcome to the Morotsko Method. I am your host, Adrian Jezik. It took most of my life to get sick and several years to make myself well again. I had to risk my life in order to save it. I was told by doctors that I was chronically ill and I needed medication in order to survive. The problem was that none of the medicines worked, so I took my healing into my own hands. Through my practice of deliberate cold exposure and adding more natural modalities along the way, I found my path out of traditional medicine and towards intuitive self-care. I am here to share my story and yours. I want the world to know what we are all capable of. Hi there, welcome to the Morotsko Method. I am your host, Adrian Jezik. Today I have a special guest with me. I always like to say that, all of my guests are special. And before I introduce him, I need to make a correction. On my podcast previously, as well as other podcasts where I've been a guest, I've referenced a book called Blue Mind. And every time I reference this book, I say it's written by Michael J. Wallace. That's not true. It's by Wallace Nichols. And I just want to throw that correction out there so that you all understand. Blue Mind, Wallace Nichols not Michael J. Wallace. Forgive me, I rarely remember the name of the author of a book that I'm reading or interested in, so when I refer them moving forward, I will either say I don't remember or I'll figure it out later and introduce it to you guys. So thanks for understanding that I'm human too, full of my own mistakes, and now I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Brian Call. He owns a facility in Hood River, Oregon called Cell Regen, where he is bringing healing to the masses. I am excited to be sharing this conversation with Brian today. Brian, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be coming down here. Yeah, and so tell me about you. We were just getting started on your journey of how you became a chiropractor and what led you into this mode of healing, helping people heal and helping people find their fullest potential not only through healing, also through mental challenges, physical challenges. Share with us. So my journey kind of began from a very conservative mindset, a conservative Christianity mindset in an allopathic specific field. So there were some uh, very specifically directed ideas that were heavily ingrained into me as like almost infallible, unbreakable laws. And uh, so the idea of holistics and everything like that, from my standpoint, and what was communicated to me was that they were super woo-woo. Like even massage was kind of woo-woo in my like understanding of what I was reared in. <clears throat> so the, the concept of anything like holistic, chiropractic, um, even the, the concept of what would be the deliberate cold exposure would have been something that just been totally out of my normal comfort zone. Um, I got into a uh, pretty terrible ski accident where I ended up fracturing three vertebrae in my back that put me for about three and a half years in a pretty constant state of misery, trying to become a professional skier, um, playing a high level of football, and uh, all of that kind of stopped and ended. And then my wife had been telling me forever to go and see a chiropractor to that, which I was like, ah, yeah, 
what's that shaman gonna do? He's gonna uh, chant over you, you know, shake some beads and rub you down with crystals to heal you and kind of just openly, almost mocking her uh, established knowledge that she'd got being raised in Seattle and having a lot of experience through her athletic um, abilities and being healed through natural medicine. And um, I finally submitted when it was at the free clinic to go and get treated by a chiropractor. And um, sure enough, this guy in about three and a half, four weeks put me back together about 80% where I was like, holy shit. Like there's, there's really something to this, you know? Like my, my grandfather was the one, so I was a uh, poor college student no insurance when this had happened and so I went and got the discount family exam to be able to see what was wrong with me after I'd been carted off the mountain because I couldn't walk. Um, did, you know, his cardiologist, he's great, at, he's great at the heart but kind of shit at physical exam and he was like, well you separated all your ribs, here's a, here's a script for pain meds, don't be dumb anymore. <laughs> and that was the extent. So for three and a half years, I didn't know that I'd had a fractured back because I was never properly examined. And uh, it wasn't until this particular physician that I was then x-rayed and, uh, and discovered that I'd had all these uh, uh, traumas in my spine. And uh, I got to experience that firsthand healing effect of uh, uh, what holistic interventions can really do to stabilize and help balance a, a system and uh, it was like wow like all this time how come nobody ever told me this to which my wife is like kicking my leg under the table right she's like I told you so yeah. I did tell you so you fought me on this so many times um, and uh, so she was like this catalyst towards my journey in so many different directions um, that she like vaulted me into exactly where our life is currently but man the things a guy will do to impress the lady he's interested in I love it <laughs> yeah it is and uh, so like yeah she she catapulted us into like all these different avenues of being where we are now in in Hood River Oregon with our biohacking center um, and it's been a it's been a really fun journey so I want to point out for those of you listening that we're walking along a street here doing a little walk and talk on the bridal path in central Phoenix. This is one of my favorite places to walk and talk. Also, I love the history of the bridal path. They kept this because even up until about five, ten years ago, people were still riding their horses into town. And so they would take this bridal path with the horses and every once in a while you'll still walk by someone on a horse on this bridal path so it's right off of central it's a beautiful space it's mostly shaded which even as much as i love my sunshine i do also love the shade so if you hear any background noise that's what's going on feel like you're on the journey with us so brian i want to talk about too you were sharing with me the ways that your wife adina has introduced you to other levels of healing you've been through the gamut the gamut and from a from an unlikely perspective too that it was uh, um, someone who had grown up in that conservative environment that like anything outside of that was really not like 
something that you would be open to doing. And so you were Mormon. I grew up That was your religious background. Yes. Which is pretty strict. It's not very, it's not open. It's, it's not open. about trying new things. That's correct. And uh, that, that had been my experience. And uh, so it's funny. So I was never really drawn to like, like substances or other things like that. Open times like, you know, natural medicines and, and whatnot. And so it wasn't even until after we were married that I'd ever even like got drunk <laughs> and it was funny because it was my wife who was like baby I gotta go drink I gotta get drunk <laughs> and I was like big strong strapping guy out to protect me like I know what happens in the movies when people get drunk I'm coming with you I gotta protect you and so we do that and then uh, um, which I you know I had these like natural defenses that I never had this clarity to question because that was just the way it is you're like that innate bridled um direction is when you're a kid you just get fashioned and then you don't know that you don't know yeah until it happens and so like i never would have like really had questioned that and then that happens i was like okay i got that experience and then later she's like okay i've got to go smoke weed that's <laughs> like well <laughs> big strong strapping guy again like well I know what happens in the movies when that goes on. I've got to come be there with you. <laughs> and uh, this is just like this continuing fashion. So Adina had uh, struggled with anxiety and depression, um, as so many uh, people in our societal norms do. And she had been going to, some, to yoga with uh, her yoga instructor, who was then her friend, and was dating a shaman of sorts. And uh, she had been invited to do a particular plant-based medicine, well not plant-based, but a, a holistic medicine um, called Combo, which is a peptide therapy secreted by um, a tree frog down in the Amazon. And uh, it was touted to help with anxiety and depression and a number of other things. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go do this frog poison thing. Uh, and I was like, well... <clears throat> Guess what I know what I yeah, have to exactly. do. <laughs> Just like in my normal passage here, I got to come too. And it's funny because I'm a big researcher, so I love to go and look at data and, and all that stuff to make informed decisions and uh, uh, viewing myself as somewhat of a, uh, an intelligent person that I was like, okay, had I read data or research or really even searched the internet for, for combo in advance, I'd have been like, oh, hell no. <laughs> so for those of you who have never heard of Combo, it's this tree frog from um, down in the jungle in the Amazon that they take these little peptide secretions off of it. They burn these little holes uh, onto your um, onto your skin superficially so that they, they can wipe this little peptides into those capillary beds. And it causes some immediate drastic responses uh, that are like you know tachycardia you begin to puff up and swell shallow breaths because it's hard to to get a full deep breath like almost immediate nausea which will then result in uh, quite a bit of purging mm -hmm. uh, of your system to help like reset your biliary system and uh, everything along those lines why somebody would want to uh, to undergo this from like the standpoint of the outsider was like beyond me. I went into it blind. So I just show up and like, okay, so uh, here we what, are, let's what, do some what combo. Are we doing? Like we're doing some frog stuff, right? What does that mean? Um, I did my uh, 
an ceremony that involved uh, something called sananga, which is like this little uh, um, uh, extract of a tuber that they drop in your eye that feels probably what I'd imagine pepper spray or mace would feel like. Very intense in the eyes. This little uh, um, tobacco snuff called hepe that they blow up your nose to kind of help as a grounding effect prior to the, uh, uh, the drastic change with combo. We do combo. And there's no like psychedelic effect. It's not like a, uh, the other type of Amazonian drugs that alter your consciousness. So you're not tripping. Yeah, there's no tripping, no, no even high, like no euphoria. It's almost just straight suffering. <laughs> um, but it was interesting because as that happened and you weather such a very uncomfortable and difficult situation, it's almost like how Morosco is aptly named the forge. Mm. In a metal forgery, they go in and they take... Uh, metals and burn out what they call the dross, right? The imperfections, the impurities that then melted into metal can cause fractures and breakpoints under stress. And if you melt it to high temperatures, you can melt out those imperfections so you get a stronger, more full, capable metal with more integrity. And like you go into the forge and you're literally burning out, you're freezing out those imperfections as you begin to develop. And that what this was like is that you go through this very intense situation and it changed me in like a whole way that I cannot describe I can't I can't uh, support enough as to how impactful that this had been on my life One how of the, long ago did you do this for the first now? time um, maybe maybe four years Wow so fairly recent feels that way yeah um, but changed my whole whole world like, I've just felt like, you know, Viktor Frankl? Yeah. Yeah, so like, in his uh, uh, book, The uh, Man's Search for Meaning, he talks about that there's a, a time between stimulus and response. Yeah. And it's a short window that we made a conscious decision sometime in our life that we react almost subconsciously after we've made that initial decision to frame for these uh, individual moments. Somebody cuts us off in traffic and immediately the finger goes up because that's the default response. You don't have to think about it, it just happens, right? That's one of my favorite examples <laughs> of the way the ice has taught me the power of the pause versus reaction. So response versus reaction. Yes. Response, you have the power of the pause. Reaction, you just react. Reaction is that pre-programming reaction where response is a cognitive effort that you make a decision. Mm -hmm. And so like what Combo did for me that was amazing and beautiful was that I felt as though it took my split second reactions that just happened and drew it out to like this big long line that I could just see decision after decision after decision almost instantaneously and be like, here's my first one oh man, that's kind of shitty. <laughs> this one could be better. That one is even better. Like, let's do that. And I felt like I could rationalize that like almost immediately. And that lasted for yeah, a good six or seven weeks. Uh, just this incredible clarity. And what it did was it stripped these blinders off of my life that I got this 30,000 foot perspective that I didn't really have access to before. Not that I couldn't have had it, but I didn't willingly or consciously know how to gain that access and it just allowed me that I could then take some different avenues in my life. I was in a business partner, uh, partnership that was not the most healthy relationship for me and it, it gave me the courage 
and the clarity to witness that I needed to make an alteration change, although it being uncomfortable because now I'm leaving a salary job with a partnership with potential expansion opportunities and growth to a very uncertain and unstable situation that I can move to a new state, nobody that I know there, and start a new business with so, very little to no capital. So you, and this time you were in Florida, and you moved to Hood River, Oregon. Yes. And this is where you started Cell Regent. Yeah. And what inspired it? What did, you know, you're, you're doing the chiropractor thing, you're helping people in all these ways. What inspired Cell Regent? Um, well, initially I'd worked in a stem cell center when I first uh, graduated. My clinic was chiropractic, physical therapy, and then orthopedic stem cells, even to the point of some systemic stem cells that do IVs and stuff like that to help out multiple conditions. So I was always kind of like really gravitated towards that um, that futuristic edge of the, of the holistic and advancement of regenerative medicine. Um, and it kind of got this little bug up my ass about like, I just got to read all these studies and find out what's the next latest and greatest. What else can I do? Exactly. What else? How can we push this further? And so like reading about all these things, going to these all uh, regenerative type of conferences and getting exposure to new innovative therapies that in most cases are really not even new at all. They've been around for decades. They're just not widely understood or mainstream applied. And they're not prescribed by the doctors that we go to with the illnesses that we have to begin with. We have Correct. these illnesses, we get a diagnosis, we're prescribed a medication. There is no advice for follow-up or this is how you eat better, this is how you sleep better, this is how you improve your emotional regulation, which then helps tie into your physical healing. Yes, that's so true. And like, it's just sad because like the allopathic traditional field has been entirely geared towards symptom suppressants, right? That is just, we're gonna stop the symptoms because that's what health is, is a lack of symptoms, not like a prevalence of health. It's just like, it's not broken, so then you must be fine. Um, and it's not, you know, like, I've never personally met a, a doctor that really didn't care about people. Um, I'm sure that there's some of them that are out there that are just financially or otherwise motivated. But in my own personal experience, I've never met like an allopathic traditional physician that just really didn't care about like what they did, but they really feel strapped by the system and by the, the way that it operates. And maybe they don't have the courage or the will or the autonomy to step out and be like, you know what, I learned all this physiology and about understanding the body and being a super intelligent individual to make my own individual decision and adapt to individual patient circumstance instead of fall into the guidelines of I follow these protocols, which sadly in, in so many cases is almost a fucking monkey could do that job because it's just following systems and processes instead of doing a direct and immediate analysis of the whole entirety of the body and then using all that education that they were so able to go through and retain because they're brilliant and then rationalize that like, wow, there's multiple systems we need to address and intervene for a long-term preventative outcome. And it's kind of sad that it, like our system's been uh, situated and set up that way. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I believe what you said that 
they don't go into this because they don't like people. They go into this because they do like people. They want to help. They want to make change. And then they're trained through this seven plus year experience and then residency that these are the things that they have to do to help people. Like these are the tools that doctors are provided in order to help the people coming to them with illness and disease. And so I also see the threat of the financial. In order to operate as a physician, you have to do a certain amount of things. You gotta follow certain things. You gotta get in line with the insurance and all that stuff. And some doctors have hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans behind them going, you better do your job and you better do it the way that you're supposed to or else you don't have a job in our medical system. A hundred percent. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> chiropractors and, and uh, uh, more of the holistics, I feel like, have a little leg up in that advantage because we're already looked at. It's like, oh, well, you're already a quack. <laughs> so stepping out of line with uh, uh, the traditional fields and stuff like that is something that was kind of already ingained in the process and is like the subheading underlined like ground text for for our operations uh, so like being able to step out and have that it's a little easier for us to be uh, more open-minded for uh, additional avenues and you were sharing with me too that that was your stance too before you went to the chiropractor and discovered you had a broken back you were like yeah this is hippy dippy woo woo stuff oh, yeah. like this is not what i do and then you go and you have the experience you're like you said 80 percent healed in a matter of weeks how did that change the trajectory of your life? Oh my gosh, like so much, like I'm just so infinitely grateful. Number one, for my beautiful wife, uh, for just having the clarity and the patience to just put up with my bullshit for so long and continue to just like weather in the path of like, you should do this, you should do this, and just patiently allowing me to make that decision and, and let it happen eventually. Because it totally changed the whole trajectory of my life. And then being able to like, just trust her intuition and follow her through the path to be able to find combo which then led me to my next plant medicine which was ayahuasca uh, which um, many people have heard about down in the um, in Peru or down in the Amazon to uh, uh, drink this particular tea which causes you to kind of like opens your mind in almost like a spiritual very uh, deep uh, experience where I had gone through never really like fully resonated with uh, my rearing in, in the religious aspect uh, that I was more spiritual than religious and after kind of going through some pretty negative experiences in that context I was shut down spiritually for anything anyone would talk to me about something religious spiritual whether it was Christianity Buddhism uh, uh, something that Muhammad had taught anything along those lines I was like you know what buddy stop it I don't want to hear any of it yeah and it wasn't until I went through the medicine ayahuasca that it like cracked this shell of my perception of control and of my perception of what spirituality really was and for me I got this deep sense that like whoa like religion and spirituality are not the exact same thing correct they're independent and that like being spiritual is a very very big part of our being mm -hmm. and I'm missing so much of my actual capacity by shutting it down but it was through this that I was able to actually like feel that and then it really allowed me as someone who had like 
heavily ingrained himself in like that toxic masculinity. I'm so good, and and then uh, there was times where I would treat others individually pretty poorly because I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And it allowed me to kind of like crack the shell there. That all of a sudden, I could feel empathy for others instead of impatience. And I could sit there and really resonate and hold space for people who had different opinions and thoughts and emotional regulations that were separate from how I viewed the world. And it really allowed me to feel that like at a deep, deep level where I had maybe cried two times in like 15, 17 years to the point that it allowed me to then feel emotions that I could cry just because somebody else was crying because I could help feel their emotions and like sit there and hold space with them where before that wasn't something I was possible or capable of doing. And oftentimes we don't view crying as the necessary tool it is for our healing. You know, many of us have been shamed away from experiencing emotion that deeply and I think this specifically applies also to men. Men, oh, you know, quit your whining, don't be a sissy, don't cry about it, you're not allowed. And this is a societal expectation that we put on men. And it does not have to be that way. Crying is healing, crying is beneficial for all the genders. Crying is beneficial for and, and necessary for us to reach levels of healing and to connect to others, like you said, experience that empathy. Instead of looking at someone who's crying and saying, buckle up, pull up your bootstraps, you know, get it together, you can stop for a moment, recognize their pain, recognize their struggle, and hold that space. Yes. It's so valuable, man. It just allowed me, it freed me of so many, like, little fermenting disasters that happened in my life that I boarded up in a closet and would just burrow deep into my soul this toxic sludge that it took me so long to even realize that I had it stored away there and all of a sudden the door swung wide open and I was able to clean out a lot of those closets you know everyone still deals with those stuff like I still have a lot of things that I'm still operating on and working with but man what a spring cleaning that was for me and what a burden lifted that I could just be so much lighter and really enjoy my life at a deeper level because it allowed me to have a much deeper sense of gratitude and being able to feel those emotions so much like richer. It's almost like I went from like VHS to 1080p in my emotions. I was just going to say it's like going through a box of crayons that are all shades of gray to all of a sudden getting the 164 pack of every color you could imagine yes. and more. The Crayola variety set was definitely delivered. Such a dachshund tough guy. I love that. I love that. And I think there is a dissolution of these walls that we put up. We, we put up these walls because of traumas we've experienced and we say we're not going to go through that again so I'm going to erect this wall I'm going to be tough I'm going to be strong I'm going to put away that little bitch or I'm going to put away that small child that's what I did I put away the small child at a very very young age because it wasn't safe and now at 40 years old I'm going holy cow I don't know how to have fun I don't know who I am and part of it is because I've been living my life in this survival experience now that there is nothing to survive from, I realize the only shadows I'm seeing are within myself. Well, where does this come from? So I have to let that little child out. I've now created an environment that I can let that piece of me out to play. Well, what does play look like? I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. And that was part of my ayahuasca journey 
I was almost a year ago to the day, and I'm still gleaning information and being, you know, shown the way and given different tools and learning the lessons that Mama Aya taught me then. She's still in me. She's still here working. She is beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and like one of the most special experiences of my life was uh, having that journey. Um, something that like, you know, I will continually remember uh, those deep experiences, feeling really connected to my body, to my life, my past, the potential of my future, and then all mixed into the earth at the same time, like almost like feeling the earth, you know, and like the, the, the life of uh, like a plants and stuff like that. You could like, it was like very tangible. That's interesting you say that. One of the parts of one of my journeys, I did a three night in a row ceremony, and one of the parts of my journey was I was the plants. I was in the veins of the plants, seeing the ways that they are connected to the animals, to the people, to the earth, and that I too am the plants. And now that I've consumed this plant medicine, it will remain in me. And what's really interesting to me is about a year prior to my ayahuasca journey, I started collecting house plants. I had never been able to keep a plant alive before. And through this process of healing my feminine, going to Mama Aya specifically to meet my mother, and to get in touch with that part of myself, I realized I'd been cultivating this journey for years leading up to this experience, caring for plants, discovering my nurturing energy, um, leaning into that surrender of, you know, this is a living thing that's not really giving me anything back that I can see, but I feel it, you know? When I walk into my house and I see 37 house plants, and this is an, not an exaggeration, I feel alive, I feel connected, and I feel it in my body and in my bones. So then post ayahuasca, once I got to know the plants on such an intimate level, I came home and my husband calls them my friends. He always calls my plants my friends and I'm like, these are my babies. I didn't get to have my own babies. I was blessed with two babies from another mother. I've talked to you guys about that before. Uh, the best baby mama out there. And these are my babies. These are the ways that I get to connect to that nurturing energy that I'd never experienced before. And through ayahuasca, I was then able to continue that healing process, getting in touch with Mama Aya, getting in touch with the parts of me that are nurturing and that do want that baby energy so, without the poopy diapers. Right. <laughs> That's not, hasn't been my favorite part of parenthood, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely part of the process. Uh, it's so funny that you like talk about that because like I hadn't even really put two and two together because prior to those experiences with plant-based medicine for me like I enjoyed the look of plants and the feel of plants and it's almost like I'd go to Home Depot and like look at a plant and be like don't you want to come home to my house and die <laughs> that was like the experience you know and then I really I, I got into bonsais through like a friend and so that's really when I got my, my touch into like the green thumb aspect. And now when you come to my office, there's plants everywhere. Like it is just, uh, there's, it's just growing on the walls. There's uh, uh, vines and ferns and everything. And it's a really like earthy feel inside the office. And I, I really, really like love the, the feel for that. I hadn't put that together that maybe it was from uh, uh, doing some of the plant medicine. Therapy. I have Ruben heard that ayahuasca begins working in you long before I believe now before I came to this meat suit I believe that I knew when I chose this specific life journey 
that I would meet her, I would meet my mother at some point in time and that that would be part of my journey. In order to even participate, I had to get off of prescription medications. So one of the medications I was on was Zyrtec. It's an allergy medication. I developed allergies in my 30s, which I'm learning all kinds of stuff about that. I'm going to get somebody on the podcast to talk about that and dive deeper. But in the meantime, I had a two-year journey of removing these prescription medications and alternate substances from my life in order to be able to meet her, in order to be able to sit with ayahuasca. So I knew I wanted to do it. I knew that that was my ultimate goal. And that was one of the driving factors of my healing was I wanted to sit with this particular medicine. I, I needed that mother energy in ways that I not experienced in my life. And a powerful medicine at that. And that's, uh, so I'm, uh, I'm one of three founding members for a, a new upstart that's not all the way off the ground yet in um, Costa Rica, the Corcovado Peninsula uh, down there in Osa. Um, we uh, are trying to set up a medical biohacking plant-based medicine facility that you can come down and be able to experience ayahuasca or combo or uh, some other of the uh, Amazonian type therapies to help open your mind in a place that's safe, secure, that you can do some biohacking, do some cold plunging, uh, hyperbarics and things of like that nature to combine and get a compounded effect so it's mind, body and soul. Um, so that's kind of how I set up my clinic currently. It's a biohacking subscription center that I have all these different uh, therapy interventions that people get um, a monthly subscription rate, they get X amount of credits when they buy their subscription, and uh, then they can decide which therapy they want. And I wanted it to be that mind, body, and soul, where these work on the body, they work directly on the mind to help physiology operate better and the mitochondria function and heal your, uh, your system at an increased rate. But I was like, how do I touch onto that soul aspect in my clinical practice here? And so right now being a little bit unsatisfactory with the state of humanity and the human condition, I was like, okay, I wanna instill more of the soul aspect. So I give away two free credits a month to my patients if they will just do random acts of service for somebody write up their experience, how did it make them feel, um, and then tag us on our socials, I'll give you a free service. And if you keep a gratitude journal, you're expressing your gratitude, write down those things that you're grateful for. How's that impacting your life? There's incredible power in gratitude and how that can change your physiology and your neurotransmitters. And so if you write up a gratitude journal, write down how that changed you, or say that long overdue apology or thank you to somebody, and then just tag us, I'll give you a free credit. And so it's just, uh, I want to endear humanity to itself. You know, all of us are just each other in a different experience. So the state of condition of humanity is that we are all one. It's not this separate individuals that we're operating, uh, that it's just me versus you or, or however it is. No, we are one expanse together. And if we, we are were, a collective consciousness. Yes. And if we can operate on that uh, that mindset, so instead of the, the opposition and the contention, that we can really settle into allowing that unity to go together and be able to feel at peace, capable, and safe in our surroundings. 
I love that. So let's talk about cell regen for a minute. What type of modalities of healing do you have? So I've got uh, the Morosco Forge ice bath. I've got a finished sauna, so we do contrast therapy. We'll have a patients come in and do their breath work, go and do some deliberate cold exposure, go into uh, the sauna, which I keep at about 190 degrees, so it's really hot, Yep. and then you can go back and forth um, between the two, super helpful. Um, I've got a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber, um, neurofeedback, QEG brain scanning to measure electrical impulses in the brain where something would be working or not. Uh, I've got pulsed electromagnetic field therapy, which is infusing negative ions into the tissues to help reduce inflammation, create neurotransmitters, and increase healing effect. Uh, transcranial magnetic therapy, which is incredible because it has done, uh, in the research, done better than SSRIs or benzodiazepines, which is the allopathic gold standard for depression and serotonin recovery. Mm -hmm. And this does that without having to uh, uh, have any of those contraindications and, and changing bionegative feedback loops, which real negative for your system. Um, intersegmental traction, which is a way to hydrate and really pump the fluids in and out of like your spinal discs and muscles for achy sore joints. Um, whole body vibration therapy, which is a great way of draining lymphatics and increasing a particular type of water. It's the only type of water that can permeate inside and out of a cell, specifically mitochondria called exclusion zone water. Um, percussive massage with like Theraguns, uh, structural rehabilitation uh, equipment for your cervical spine, low back, specific fascia release stretchers for, you know, uh, your soleus, in, uh, some of those to kind of help like people who have like tight calves or soleus in the ankles, they don't have that full range. Oftentimes back pain, hip pain will become a, a prevalent uh, exacerbation of that. Um, let's see, where else, what else did I miss? Uh, Oh yeah, a metabolic analysis um, device that we do, almost like a cardiac stress test, hook you up with a mask that measures your, uh, your volume of the air in and out of your lungs when you're on a treadmill, when you're at rest, it can tell you if you're burning ketones, are you burning sugars, what's your resting metabolic rate, what's your active metabolic rate, and then how does that interplay with your overall metabolism as a whole, because every diet, everything like that is really based on a bell curve median average that's not yours. Right. So this is catered specifically to your metabolic system as whether you want to uh, gain muscle, do you want to lose weight, or you want to build endurance, we can cater towards your specific desired outcome and then design a plan of exercise routine, uh, of dietary interventions, which are specifically catered and adapted to your physiology as an individual. Wow. So that sounds things. that sounds so much cooler than going to the gym and running on a treadmill. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's going to be part of it when I get my full scan and you're like, Adrian, what you're going to need to do is start running on a treadmill or outside. Like you're going to have to start running. I think that's uh, probably one of my fears is that the first thing that I go in and I get some sort of analysis, like you need to do more cardio. Well, is walking and talking not enough? Because I tell you what, it really takes something to be able to breathe deeply and really hoof it and walk. Yeah. Can that be enough? <laughs> and, and we will, and we'll, we'll customize and cater uh, uh, towards that. And so, like, um, even to the point that we can, like, specifically identify what's wrong with, like, neurotransmitter testing. You know, how's your cortisol? What's your dopamine? What's your norepinephrine? What's your uh, um, uh, serotonin levels like? As a functional scan, not just a blood serum floating level of what's in the system, 
but metabolite testing, which actually shows what did your body utilize? How yeah. much of it was actually put to work? And so we can identify that and then you know give a, uh, um, a direction as to what your body may need physically as a, a best alternative. And then if it's something that like some of the plant medicines like combo, I'm a, I'm a facilitator for the combo that I'll do in my practice or in people's homes to uh, kind of guide people through that process if they uh, may need that depending on what their physiology is showing. So everybody's prescription that I give out is very widely different. And you wouldn't give a prescription out or a lifestyle regimen or a workout regimen to someone who's like, I hate running. You're not going to be like, Adrian, you have to run. When you know it's not something I like and it's not something I'm going to do, why would you prescribe that? So a little bit, you're learning what the body and the brain is doing, and then you take in the lifestyle account and you design a regimen that, like, this is something you can at least get started with. Does that sound right? Actionable. So, like, for example, like the diet. The, the, the diet... Um, which one's the best, which was right. The best diet for you is the diet that you'll be compliant and complicit with. Yeah. That you can stick to, that you can adopt and, and put into your life. Yeah. Uh, so everybody is at a specific different starting point. And so being able to start you where you will actually be compliant is exactly where we need to go. Because if I give you this perfect plan for you, which I believe that there are things that are much more effective for individuals, but maybe you're not up to that task yet. Mm-hmm. And we start you at a place where you are, so you can begin to baby steps into the point where you can get to those more advanced thresholds of changing your physiology. That makes sense to me. I've tried a lot of different styles of food regimen. I stopped calling it a diet long ago. I call it a food regimen because diet has this connotation to it that's like, oh, you're dieting or, oh, I got to go on a diet. And it's typically associated with weight loss. And I don't need weight loss. What I need is health optimization. So I tried one meal a day. I tried all carnivore. I've tried animal, mostly animal-based. And one of the things that I've learned is Although my husband can eat a 14-ounce steak once a day and be in the optimal health zone, I can't. That doesn't work for me. I felt good for a while, and then I started slowly packing on weight. I noticed discrepancies in my hormonal fluctuations. I noticed um, changes in the elevations and de-elevations of my mood. And I was like, gee, I wonder if it's because I'm trying to eat like someone else. It's not that I was, I wasn't listening to my body. I was, and this happened for me because I, all of a sudden I was craving yogurt, like plain Greek, nothing in it. Just give me some yogurt. And I was like, what is this? Well, this is my body speaking to me saying, we need you to add something else. You know, what you're doing isn't working for us. We need you to add something else. So I started incorporating some yogurt and some root vegetables. And then understanding too, or I'll share this too. No matter what type of food regimen I do, I am not strict or rigid. If I want to go out and have a nice meal and a glass of wine and some mashed potatoes, I'm going to do that. I do not like restriction. The minute you tell me I can't do something, I will go off the rails. I'm going to do all of that something because you can't tell me what to do. And that includes if it's coming from me. So I don't do well with that rigidity. I need some fluid structure. And what I notice is that when I'm on a good plan and I'm eating well, when I do have a meal, like last night, it was delicious, but my, was it rich. 
all the way up till this morning, I was like, first of all, I don't eat that late at night. I'm like an old person. I eat at five, maybe six o'clock. That's my preference. I want a good three or four hours of digestion before I lie down to sleep. And we ate kind of late last night. It was like 8.30. And it was a rich meal. And that was so delicious. I mean, those braised pork ribs, you could they just melted in your mouth. Best of my life. Oh, so delicious. Uh, and I can't do that every night. I can't live like that. I'm sweating it all out today. It'll be great. But I still don't like the rigidity of you can never do this again. And you can never do that again. And you guys, I'm so excited to share. You know, if you've listened to this podcast before, at 32 years old, and when I got sick, I developed an egg allergy. All of a sudden, this food that I was eating every single day became my enemy number one. And I have been, over the last eight years on my healing journey, saying, when I can eat eggs again, I will know that I'm healed. It wasn't the reversal of autoimmune. It wasn't getting rid of pills and prescriptions that were supposedly keeping me alive. It wasn't the change in my attitude or mental shift. I needed to be able to eat a darn egg in order to prove myself my healing capabilities. And I am so happy to say that as of a month ago, I can eat eggs, mayonnaise, fried, over easy, steak tartare with the raw yolk right on top of it deviled eggs at Thanksgiving for the first time in years. Like, I can't even tell you the joy that I have in my life because I can now eat eggs again. So you can't tell me that we're not capable of healing. I may not have done it as fast as Wolverine, but you better believe I can do it. And the body's incredible as to how it can do that. And I I really like a bunch of your key points of not, not entirely restricting yourself overall, but there are key factors that make it much easier for you to be able to restrict yourselves when you're at your weakest points. For example, one of my little life hacks that I do is that I actually really love sugars and sweets and things like that. Oh, uh, in particular, too. like pudding. I love pudding and pastries. Like, <laughs> I'm like 12 years old. What do you want? You want like the tiramisu? No, I want the jello pack. Mmm, you know? donuts. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> So what I do in order to avoid this, because sugar is rocket fuel for inflammation and for a lot of those negative interactions in our body, and uh, being able to avoid that is I don't bring it home to my palace. So nothing comes home. It's a treat. Yeah. If I'm going to go have some of that, I have to go out to get it. I've got to leave my house, and then since I don't go out that much to go out and eat, Maybe that happens very rarely, once a month, once every other month, who knows? Um, that I just don't bring it to my house because it is between that seven and nine o'clock where my will comes low and all of a sudden I'm digging through the cupboards looking for chips or snacks or whatever. And when that is, when I'm in that mode, <laughs> it's like if you remember that Lay's commercial, you can't eat just one, that's spot on because I'll devour the entire bag. And those foods are designed to be that way. They're designed with the fats, the sugars, the carbs, the feel good in the moment that lets you crash later. So you don't associate the food with the crash. And I find the more on top of my food regimen that I am, when I do introduce that treat, I really feel the effects on the body. And so I know that if I'm gonna dive into that treat, if I'm gonna choose dessert, if I'm gonna choose a bowl of ice cream, I know how it's going to affect me. It's also going to leave my system quicker because my system's already running on mostly solid fuel. Yeah. 
That's fascinating to me. And then another little uh, tweak hack is uh, if you're starting to feel those cravings, so many times in our physiology is you are not hungry, you are thirsty. Yes. Go and drink 16 ounces of fluid and wait 15 minutes. Yeah, and if you're, like, I, I just saw a thing the other day, and I think it was, like, Huberman posted it, or, or I'm not, I may not get this correct, but they're like, if you're craving this, your body needs this. If you're craving this, your body needs this. I wish I could remember even one example, because I was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm missing this vitamin or this nutrient. My brain says, I want to feel good, so I'm going to eat the ice cream, and I'm going to eat the fats, or I'm going to eat the sugars, when in actuality, maybe I'm craving water. Maybe I'm craving the antioxidants of dark chocolate. Maybe I'm craving, maybe my body is actually in need of some sort of vitamin, mineral, or nutrient that I'm not getting. Yes. I wish I could remember even one thing on there. <laughs> I don't have any that come immediately to mind either. <laughs> yeah. So, tell me about your first ever ice bath. Okay, so uh, first ever ice bath. You know, I found you guys relatively early when you guys had just barely started as a, as a company. Mm -hmm. um, I had been uh, reading about like the benefits of ice baths. You know, I'd had some through my athletic experience and, and everything like that. So I couldn't tell you as to like when my first one was. Mm -hmm. All I know is when I did them athletically, I hated them. I it hear was that a lot. It was the trainer like forcing you to go in it. And you're like, and you, you resent every moment. You come out and you're like, oh, I'm so glad that that's over. And sometimes localized, like only the elbow that you yes, hurt or only right. the foot that you hurt, which, is which I think is so intense, harder. By the way. So much worse. Yes. Yeah, because um, you get that localized systemic, in, like, uh, uh, it's not the systemic inflammation that gets controlled, it's that localized. So you have all these neurons telling you how terrible it is. But when you have so much of your body being exposed to that, it like shuts down because it's like an overload, I think, uh, that you're like, oh, well, it's not as bad. Yeah. Well, so I can't tell you my, like my actual first one, but last year was my first process of getting ingrained and doing it regular. Mm -hmm. and, as uh, a whole body experience. Yes. And so as I was looking for different companies, there was a number of different companies I was looking at in, in, uh, in the Ukraine and in, in Australia and some in the U.S., uh, as to like what one was going to be the ice bath I wanted at my center and my wife was like why why do we need an ice bath this is a large investment why don't we put it towards something that could be more useful and I was like you know what don't, coming from a chiropractic standpoint it was very limited on my scope as to why I wanted an ice bath little to my own knowledge the expansive immersion experience that you can get by doing all these ice baths that are very much outside of just localized inflammation. So I got it for strained rotator cuffs and herniated discs and things like that. And I was like, just trust me, baby. It's going to help my patients. Yeah, it's going to help speed their healing. It's going to help I, with inflammation. Yeah. And then Recovery. I, I put those people in that. They're coming in with herniated discs. They're coming in with a torn rotator cuff and those types of things. And then it was funny because... They, they start like asking me kind of like, almost like sheepishly, they're like, hey Don, you know, I'm feeling so much better, like in my back or my shoulder, but you know, does this help with anxiety? Because as I've been doing this this last four weeks, I don't have any anxiety anymore, or my depression is half, or my migraines are almost non-existent when I'm in here regular. And I knew that these were available in the research and I've read that, but for whatever reason, it didn't transition into like knowledge or direction in my clinical practice 
until I started having patient after patient after patient coming into that. So what was originally an inflammatory musculoskeletal based practice rapidly transitioned into 40, sometimes even close to 50% of my clinical basis was coming in for mood dysregulation, which wow. was such a crazy shift for me. Um, like working on that level, like an emotional level. So it was very intimate with people because the uh, going into the ice bath has such a unique and special way of drawing emotion out of you. Yeah. Emotion that's been trapped long in there, you know, some PTSD stuff or whatnot. People regularly break down in full tears as yep. in that, and they just let it go. And it's weird to think of the ice melting you. Yeah. And that's what it does. The ice melts those walls, melts those those hard barriers that we've put up to protect ourselves from previous traumas and all of a sudden you get into the ice and you are faced with the real and it is melting those walls it is melting those barriers it is showing you this is where you need the healing the cold I believe has a way of finding the healing that you need and I do believe it starts in your brain and it's unbridled like it has no discrepancy to like alter one or the other place so it just comes full force and just cracks that shell and lets it all go out um, that's that's one of the things i find fascinating too um you're going to go if you're below 35 degrees you're going to go into fight or flight and even those of us who have been in traumatic experiences that have activated fight or flight previously which is most of us we don't know what that's going to look like when we're in the ice so it's a surprise. It's a shock to you. It's new to me. I can't predict it. And we're facing it. We have the opportunity through this practice to face it and then teach ourselves how to move through it. So the next time when you're talking about that pause, that reflection versus reaction, you're more equipped. You're more prepared. And suddenly things don't seem so big. Those mountains don't seem so high. So it's so interesting like that because like like correlatives, correlations, right? Our memories are very heavily uh, associated with the amygdala in conjunction with a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. And these establish our baseline paradigms, whether this is good or whether this is bad. And then it gets filed away in this subconscious file that whenever it gets triggered again, it brings up that file and says, hey, this is the interpretation. This is not good for you. So in most contexts of anxiety and stimulating these neurological sympathetic pathways, it's in the correspondence of the paradigm of like, this is not a good thing for me. This is danger. Mm -hmm. And when you sit in an ice bath with the direct intention of healing, you're stimulating these pathways, but with a new paradigm of intention. And going into the ice bath rapidly and massively surges norepinephrine into your system. So now, your amygdala, in association with norepinephrine, is establishing new contexts. So you have a competing highway with your traditional anxiety highway that now you can reach back on and draw power from when you get into that anxiety outside of the tub. I have patients all the time that are like, oh my god, I had this experience. I started to feel the anxiety and I was like, hey, I've been here before. I know what this feels like. It's not as bad as being in the tank. Yeah. I can just breathe and I'm going to get over this. And it's okay because they've established this competing highway. And then now if you run that highway enough, just like any trail that gets 
beaten down, it becomes wider and wider, and eventually you might be able to even flop from an anxiety default that is a negative connotation to be like, this is okay, this is a healing context, and I have the ability to actually control and manage this. And then, too, that phrase, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger, starts to make a little more sense. Yeah. Just a little bit more sense. Um, one of the ways that I like to think of it is when I grew up, I grew up in a household with my father who had untreated bipolar schizophrenia. And so his coping mechanisms, his emotional responses, I mimicked those. This was my this was my leader for all intents and purposes. This was my, you know, my authoritative figure. This is the person teaching me what it's like to move through life. So I build all these strong neural pathways that respond emotionally in these situations the way someone with a mental disorder does. So as an adult, these don't serve me. As an adult, these are not coping skills. These are reactionary things that I've learned. And when it came to beginning to practice deliberate cold exposure, I'm now building these new neural pathways from this place of meditative calm as my body's producing, my brain's producing all this norepinephrine. So suddenly I'm learning how to cope and manage emotions in ways that I thought were beyond me. I knew that I wasn't unwell and I also knew that my greatest challenge was my emotional regulation. And through the cold, through learning what it actually looks like to have emotional regulation and be calm through these extreme experiences, I did become, I did learn to become more responsive versus reactive. Am I still reactive? Yes. Do I still experience extreme emotional dysregulation? I do. I did last Saturday. I want to tell you and just be honest that it has not just gone away. It did not eliminate my tendency to sometimes still become emotionally dysregulated and reactive. What it did for me was reduce that. And even as I continue this practice, that part also continues to heal. And I'm undoing 40 years of this survival mode with these inconsistent ways of coping. So it's going to take some time. I want to offer myself and I want to encourage other people out there to offer themselves grace in this process, compassion in this process. I was talking with a woman a couple of weeks ago and if she's listening, she's going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And so I'm not going to name her by name. And she was talking about her struggle in the cold. She's like, you know, I just had to say to myself, don't be a little bitch. Get your shit together. What's wrong with you? And as she's saying this, my heart is starting to break. Like, don't talk to yourself that way. You wouldn't talk to me that way. You wouldn't talk to a client that way. You wouldn't talk to a best friend that way. How would you talk to your four-year-old self? Would you say, don't be a little bitch. Get this done. No. You'd take a moment. You'd say, it's okay. I know it's scary. And there's another thing that we touched on in this conversation because I was like, why were you talking to yourself that way when it came to the cold? What is your first earliest memory of your experience with cold? And I'm not going to share hers because that's her story. I will share mine. My earliest memory with discomfort and cold, I was a small child. I don't know how old. I'm guessing between the ages of three and five. My brother and I, raised by my father, were taken to this person's house. I don't know where my dad went. 
I don't know what happened to him. I know that we were told to sit on the floor. The floor was either cement or tile or linoleum. It was something hard and it was something cold. And we fell asleep there. We fell asleep hungry, scared, not knowing where we were, not knowing what was going on, not knowing, not knowing anything, not knowing if and when dad was coming back. And it terrified me. We were both huddled together, terrified. And I don't know how long. I don't know if it was just overnight. I don't know if it was a day and a half. I don't know if it was just an hour. All I remember is this is my earliest experience and memory of the cold. And I was terrified. So any any time in my life I was met with cold, it brought back that terror. So I've talked before about being, you know, a Florida girl, living in Hawaii. Phoenix summers are still my favorite time of year. That hasn't changed. And I do not become emotionally dysregulated at the temperature of the air. I am safe. I've created this safe environment for myself. Everything is okay. Cold does not necessarily mean danger. Not anymore. Go ahead. So one of my real negative experiences with cold as you were talking about this kind of sparked my uh, look into the background and see like what was my experience was hunting with my father. My father's a big time hunter. I was not great at hunting. That was not my, not my design. It's funny, like backpacking multiple days in the backcountry, being quiet with a gun to shoot an animal, had no drive and, and inspiration for me. But it's funny, if you put a camera in that same situation, it would be thrilling, you know, exhilarating to go back there and just witness nature. Um, and uh, so we, lots of hunting growing up. And it's one time my dad thought it would be a great idea to canoe down a river that he wasn't really particularly familiar with when there was three, four feet of snow and the closest hospital was about an hour and 45 minutes away into the back roads where there's no direct access that's plowed unless you have a off-road four by four or a snowmobile mm-hmm. that somehow this was gonna be an intelligent idea that we're gonna wear waders as we canoe, which are like cement shoes from the mob, if you were to ever go under, um, (laughs) and then go hunt these elk off of this river. Well, did you even consider how you were gonna get an elk home? (laughs) In a canoe? Like, I was like 15 years old. Okay, just checking, just checking. No thought there, it's like, uh uh-huh, yep, you nod your head and you go along with it. And like, uh, in that like chagrin moment, because I was never like that big of a hunter, but I kind of did like appeasement, right? Um, well, we get out there and, you know, I was like, kind of uh, hinted that we capsized, we like filled full of water. It's uh, just chunks of ice and snow floating in the river as I'm like drastically trying to just stay alive in these rapids. I managed to get myself to the edge of the, of the stream and, uh, and then stripped down. Luckily, my dad had packed a dry bag with a couple extra coats because, you know, we were just sopping wet and four feet of snow in the middle of nowhere yep. and uh, we started to go hypothermic and we were out there for hours that I went through stage one, two and even into the final stage, stage three, where you just start to go like total delirium, right? Oh my God. Um, we're hiking our way out. I even remember like literally saying my last death rites to myself oh. and I'm just being like, well, this is it. Guess that's how this goes. I'm going to sit here and freeze to death in the snow. All right. I guess I'm grateful for all the experiences I had. And, uh, I'll be seeing you real soon, God. Um, We start hiking out, 
And I'm getting to the point where I'm like delirious where my dad has to kind of steer me because I don't really know what's happening and going on. Yeah, because you can't tell up or down, front or back. Yes. And we happen to, by some sheer dumb coincidence and luck, stumble upon a hunter truck in the backcountry. But we're out there in the middle of nowhere and so we just literally sit in this guy's tailgate. And that was like the last thing that I remember for like two days was like sitting on the hunter's truck. So apparently he took us back into town and warmed us up and everything. And I don't remember anything until like a day and a half later. Whoa. Uh, like that, that bad of an experience. So for me, like this toxic exposure and uh, traumatic experience with cold, uh, it was like, I never want to be cold again, again in my life. Yep. So being drawn and called through this was like a miracle uh, to be able to get me to go back through um, this process. But that's just to the power and testament of how the physiology and the mindset change of going through ice baths and doing the deliberate cold exposure can literally heal so many of these past traumas and exposures that we have had. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then you get to take your story back. You get to reframe what the cold means to you. Now the cold to me is my greatest teacher. It is my healer. It is still... It does still scare me like a little bitch. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Every single time I'm I stand no in... You're a victim. Now you have that responsibility and control that you can direct your own outcome. Yes. I am empowered through the practice. Even though it does still cause hesitation. Even though I still fight it. Every single, I, every single time. Even when I'm ready to take an ice bath. There's this tiny little part of my brain going, are you nuts? You've already done this. You don't have to, you're healed now. You don't have to do this anymore. And it's, yes, yes, I do. And I do wanna add a little caveat. My dad was untreated by bipolar schizophrenic, also partly because the times. You know, they didn't have the tools then that they do now. He is now treated. We now have a completely different relationship. It's a good thing. And it does not change that my formative years were formed by someone with an untreated mental disorder. And so we all have these types of experiences from our childhood, our teenage years, our 20s, our 30s, our 40s. We all go through trauma. Sometimes we don't even recognize it as trauma. We say, oh yeah, you know, my brothers used to beat me up or I used to beat up this kid in school. Or, you know, we don't realize that that also contributes to developing trauma. And they are wounds that then later emotionally and mentally we need healing for. And one of the things I've noticed about the cold is that it helps with that. It sometimes even brings things up and sometimes even brings things up that I didn't know I was working on. I didn't know that I needed to lean into this certain aspect. I didn't know that this was a thing I was struggling with. And that post ice bath clarity is such a beautiful place to me to find that peace and that calm and that mental and emotional clarity to say, okay, show me. Show me the way. Show me the things that I'm ignoring, that I'm hiding behind, that I'm not facing. Because when you sit in an ice bath, you have to face yourself. Yeah, definitely putting yourself into that uncomfortable situation. That's like the process of hormesis, the hormetic effect, which is, you know, if you're not familiar with the term, you're, you're definitely familiar with the, the concepts and the process. Exercise is a hormetic effect that you stress tissue 
to the point of damage so that it can rebuild itself at an increased and accelerated and better, stronger level. Yeah, we don't build a bicep by sitting on the couch lifting a remote. We build a bicep by doing hard push-ups and getting a little bit sore and getting a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that this is a narrative that continues throughout other aspects of life. It's uncomfortable standing in front of a crowd. Maybe for some people, uncomfortable standing and speaking in front of a crowd. And if you can choose that discomfort, I am choosing to be uncomfortable. I'm choosing to speak in front of a crowd because I know that there's something on the other side of it for me. Even if I fail, and I want to remember who said this to me last night, I believe it was Rachel at dinner that said, if I choose bravery, even when I fail, I won because I chose to do the hard thing. I did it. I'm still standing. I'm still here. And the next time I choose bravery, it might be a little easier for me. I might be able to see that end goal a little bit sooner. Yeah, absolutely. It's like stepping into those uh, uh, uncomfortable situations. It was literally like the cure for so many things. So, like, you know what the number one killer worldwide is? The heart. Heart disease, cardiovascular disease, right? Like, it's funny because they call it heart disease when it's not actually a disease of the heart tissue itself it's a disease of no, the it's vascular system vascular circular circulation and, and it's funny because over the last hundred years we've exponentially distanced ourselves from the cold from we're, temperature we're discomfort temperature right 65 to 75 degrees like our entire life right we go so, from climate controlled environment to climate controlled environment yeah. we don't ever have to experience we've temperature discomfort thermostats yep and so like we where before we'd have months at a time that we were able to be experiencing the cold and we developed this resilience. And so what happens is there is these tiny little muscles, the endothelial muscles inside of our vessels that constrict and contract to actually drive the fluid dynamics of our cardiovascular system. So the heart itself isn't directly responsible for pumping our fluids all the way down to our distal capillaries. But our uh, vascular system it is. It is our vascular system. So our heart pumps it a few, like a, a inches away from our core and the vascularity rings it out like a tube of toothpaste all the way down to the tissues exchange through these micro uh, contractions in these vessels. So they, they partially contract every time that we have a beat, but they only go into a full contraction under cold exposure. When your body gets exposed, to that intense temperature because it's trying to shunt the warmth to your core to keep you alive. It's like, you know, we don't need toes, but we do need a liver. Yeah, you can live without a toe. You can't live without the lungs, the, the heart, the stomach, the kidneys, the liver. Right. And so as it goes through this and it maintains that active contraction, just like any muscle, the physiology is the same. If you don't use it, you lose it. You lose it. And so over the last hundred years where we've not really exposed ourselves because of our vast desire for comfort, that we have lost some of the physical capacity of these endothelial contractions to drive fluid and exchange toxins and nutrients and supply into our tissues at a greater level. And so cardiovascular disease on the rise, it's no wonder because of this comfort society that we live in, that if you have a partial contraction and your vessel only kind of halfway closes, for you to get up a buildup of an atherosclerotic cholesterol deposit on the inner lining of that endothelium, which endothelium is like, it's like 11 times more slippery than ice. Things are not designed to stick to it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if it only partially moves, 
you could get a sedimentary deposit on side of that that's definitely capable. Um, when you are experiencing vast and solid strong contractions, um, then what happens is those muscles are going to go into that contraction, begin to exercise and build as they go through the cold exposure and they become more resilient, they become stronger. You become more adaptive at driving fluid in and out of your tissues, better nutrient exchange, better toxin cleanup. And all of a sudden, because the vessels, the vessels themselves are constricting all the way down, almost fully closed, you're getting more range of motion, it's more likely that you're not going to get deposits on the inner lining of that because there's way more motion in and out of those vessels themselves. So it's literally vascular exercise. Now you talk about cardiovascular exercise, it's exercising your heart muscle directly because the vessels actually vasodilate, they expand where when you go and do deliberate cold exposure, you're exercising the endothelial muscles and contracting that vascularity. So you're strengthening literally the most important muscles, arguably of anything in your entire system. I love that you dove into the deep science of that because one of the things that people like to say the most is, no, 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 I can't do deliberate cold exposure. I'm already cold. I'm always cold. My hands and feet are always cold. And I try to explain to people, yes, I understand. And if you develop this practice, you increase your body's ability to circulate your body temperature and to help increase your, your resistance to that discomfort yes. and cold. And then another one that I hear is, well, I have a disease that keeps my body from regulating temperature. So did I. I had Hashimoto's. It, it stunted my body's ability to react to outside temperature. And I still did it anyway. And now I can stand outside in 40, 50 degrees. I can feel cold. I know that this is what cold feels like. I'm not emotionally dysregulated. I'm breathing into my... I like to focus on the back of the base of the neck where the brown fat originates. I'm breathing into my body. I'm activating my body's own resources for heat and I will start to sweat. And we all have this ability, even if you're someone who hates the cold. And so then I wanna ask you, what's your opinion or what do you know about the difference between deliberate cold exposure in an ice bath with water versus deliberate cold exposure through cold air, like cryotherapy? So I'll, I'll tell you my uh, uh, stance on that too here in a sec, but I also have that, um, uh, a negative physiological interaction with cold is that I have Raynaud's condition. Yep. Raynaud's phenomenon is a lack of venous or, uh, arterial insufficiency in the capillary bed that you just don't drive fluid deep enough to exchange warmth into the distal tissues of your, of your fingers and your hands and your toes. So you're naturally less inclined to enjoy the cold because it becomes uncomfortable. And since I've been doing deliberate cold exposure, my fingers, like if you look at them, they're they, red. They are pink and red. Yeah. Where before, my fingers used to be like ghostly white. And that whole hand of like, a, oh, cold hands, warm heart was like the entirety of my whole life. You like go and like, you're on a date and you touch somebody and like, oh my God. Get like, your icy yeah. hands off of me. Get that shit out of here. Not the best aphrodisiac. 
uh, now that I've been doing uh, the, the cold exposure, my hands are great. It's so much different. Now, it's not entirely gone. It didn't like cure my Raynaud's. Just exponentially increase the capacity that it's way more comfortable and tolerable. Now, back to your original question of uh, uh, the physics of deliberate cold exposure versus that of exposure through the air. Um, just go back to like a conduction versus a convection oven, right? One is much more efficient and uh, vastly uh, overpowering compared to the other. You kind of know this inherently if you've lived in a cold environment. If you walk outside in the middle of winter and you're just in t-shirt and a shorts, you're like, wow, that is cold. But if you, on that same day, trip and fall and roll into the stream next to you, it's an entirely different experience. And the reason behind that is the physics the physics of that is that water exchanges heat 25 times faster than air. Woo! Yeah. And so to have that magnitude of a heat exchange can really amplify those growth factors and neurotransmitter effect into your body. So when you go to like a, a electric or a nitrous operated cryotherapy device, you're going to stand there and uh, it's a uh, non-humid environment for the most part that you'll sit there it will take you to extreme temperatures to the outside maybe you're getting 190 plus below zero Fahrenheit yeah they make those numbers look real important and it is cold and you will get a vascular response and it will activate endorphins and endocannabinoids and everything like that so it makes your body feel good you get an anamide release you get that bliss they response. still make you cover up a lot you wear booties you wear mittens you wear earbuds Out you wear a hat capacity for danger because it can superficially cause those burns mm. when you go into a yeah look at antonio response. brown yeah yeah right um when you go into it that's because he was wet i he didn't, didn't know that didn't dry off all the way boom increased capacity for uh, diffusion of heat exchange damages into the tissues so when you go into a deliberate cold exposure bath you're drawing out much more heat just because of the nature of the fluid heat exchange that your body's undergoing so now you're maximizing your body's shock response to be able to increase the body's physiological hormetic reaction so in what you just shared with me are you saying that Deliberate cold exposure with water is more effective, more intense than deliberate cold exposure through air. I would stand on the ledge and say yes. In my personal experience, I have said that uh, deliberate cold exposure gives me an absolute increased effect as opposed to doing the cryotherapy. Cryotherapy, in my opinion, is more like, it's like the intro for uh, like uh, doing cold exposure. It's that, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's that, like the surface. That almost everybody can go and do that, have a positive reaction, be like, wow, that was really cold, but I feel good. Yeah. Where it takes so much more grit and so much more will to then force yourself to go through an ice bath than it does through cryotherapy. I agree. And so being able to do that is part of the exacerbating condition that you actually have such a better response because now you're utilizing that mental muscle you're activating so many more growth factors and, and uh, uh, neurotransmissions in your body because of the increased compounding stress of heat loss comparative to doing it the other way wow that i love the science behind that i love hearing your take on that and then so this leads me to my next question i wanted to ask about contrast therapy so 
you know, a lot of people love that promise of a sauna after an ice bath. I like to start with the sauna because one, it's more time effective. I don't want to sit there and wait for the sauna to warm me up back to a base state before I start to sweat because I'm, it's warming me up from my ice bath. I like to end on cold and start with heat. And I've only recently gone back and forth, like done a couple of rounds of sauna, ice bath, back to sauna, end on ice bath. And that was challenging, invigorating, and enlightening. But like, do you have a best practice or do you have advice? Well, I have my preference. And so like, I actually do uh, the opposite of, of yours. Mm -hmm. I really like to start with the cold. Uh -huh. Because if I'm already heated up and I go into it, I feel like my intense reaction is blunted. It's more easy oh. for me to come in warm. I don't have quite that shock response that my body fights it and really struggles and exercise that mental muscle if I'm overheated. It feels relaxing. It feels pretty good. And you're like, oh, this is kind of calming mm -hmm. as opposed to getting into it. And you're like, ooh, this is a stressful response. I really got to fight and focus and meditate and uh, uh, bring my mind together so I can accommodate to it. Like if you sweat your ass off, a cool pool sounds like a great idea. Right. So I feel like starting in the in the ice, I get a better neurotransmitter response. Then I will go into the cold. So basically the physiology is like, you go into the ice, all the vessels contract, they, they ring out like a tube of toothpaste to the core to filter out all the inflammatory cytokines, prostaglandins. Uh, inflammation is like an acid. The longer it stays on the tissue, the longer it's going to burn said tissue. And then the tissue can kind of relax because now it's swept away almost immediately instead of taking hours to days to filter its way all the way back to the core to get off the tissue, the tissue can breathe and all of a sudden like, oh god, yes. Now we can focus some energy on repair instead of focusing on defense. Wow. It's out of the way. Then you go into the hot. The hot causes massive vasodilation. Vasodilation, when the vessels expand, it creates a negative osmotic environment. So if you imagine like a plunger in a syringe, when you pull a plunger back, the negative pressure draws fluid into the container of the syringe itself. Uh-huh. So that's what's happening is your vessels expand. They're sucking and drawing fluid out of the tissue into the ductwork, into the, into the beds of the vessels themselves. So toxins, debris, all the excess stuff that's been sitting in the tissues and floating around there is being sucked back into the fluids of your vessels and the, and the, the, the vascular system. And then you go get back into the cold and flush it again. So it's like in and out, you're pumping. So do you end on heat or do you end on cold? Depends on the outcome of what you're wanting. My preference is to end on cold. I feel like I have Me a too. much stronger response. But there's variations as to why I would say you wouldn't end on cold. Like mm -hmm. For example, someone who was uh, recently trying to get over a respiratory infection or they have a cold, they're feeling ill. I still encourage them to go get in that cold depending on what state of the illness that they're in mm -hmm. and then end on the hot. So they don't have to exercise all that increased energy of the body warming warm itself, itself up again. Up. But the stimulatory response of flushing those fluids, those toxins, the debris, and activating the immune system and upregulating white blood cell counts is something that would be important and valuable. See, I find that so fascinating because I've typically looked at it as a psychological thing. So if I got a client and they've never done an ice bath before, I want them to start with the ice bath because I want two things. One, the promise of the sauna to warm them up afterwards, and I don't want them sitting in the sauna for 20, 30, 40 minutes thinking about that two-minute ice bath. So I've looked at it as a psychological thing, and now that you're talking about this, I see that there are many other ways that I can practice just to see the difference of overall the effects of how I feel by switching it up. Yeah. 
It's interesting. Like, so like it's two minutes. Is that the standard practice? I hear, you know, through Wim Hof and things like that, that two minutes up to the neck, hands and feet in minimum amount of time for max health benefits. Like that's how long it takes to like really get that lymphatic system going, ignite the immune system, stimulate the metabolism, give you that dump of norepinephrine and dopamine. And my practice, I tend to do about three and a half minutes. Even when I'm not looking at the timer, my body just seems to hit that three and a half minute. Every once in a while I go past that. Yesterday I did a four minute ice bath. I thought it was at 33 degrees. I think it was actually at 32. Because if you've got the moving water and all those cubes of ice, it can actually be freezing without frozen solid. And um, I, I trust my body. I just, I listen to my body. And when my body says get out, I still push just a little further. Like, okay, it's time to get out, and I'm just going to wait another minute. Or maybe not a whole minute, but I'm just going to wait a little bit. So I, I have a little bit of a separate practice from, from that. Like, in my own, like, personal experience and what I've done with, like, my patients is I, I tend to push a little bit further. So, like, I feel that, like, those first two minutes is just not enough because I've just stimulated sympathetic activation. Mm-hmm. I haven't fatigued it. If you go, it's, it takes almost that two and a half minutes, sometimes even up to three minutes where you get over that threshold where your body begins to numb out and that sympathetic drive, the cortisol and the adrenaline begin to be like, okay, we're capped. We can't do any more. And now you can really bathe in that parasympathetic activation of your body being able to recover and relax. So I really love that three to five minute window. I typically three minutes is like the minimum that I'll take anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd say the average most popular time with my patients is seven minutes. Wow. I, I don't allow anybody to go longer than 10 minutes for their very first time, even though I've had multiple people who like, I feel fine. I can keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going up through that. Uh, but yeah, I, seven minutes is kind of like that's like our standard in our office almost see and at two minutes i give you the option do you want to stay or do you want to get out usually people stay and by the time you've done two minutes and you're already in it's like i got this i'm feeling good now like this this is my favorite phrase to say this is what cold feels like so many of us have no idea what this sensation is so when we get in it's such a shock to our physical system and i just say this is what cold feels like and all of a sudden you're like oh okay so this is supposed to happen this is what happens it feels like this now you have a frame of reference hold that thought for a second now you have a frame of reference of this is what cold feels like. And I have some stickers made. I'm going to give you one. We go to studio um, that say that. And all of a sudden we can recognize it. Like this is the sensation happening in my body right now. Just like um, anxiety. We can name it. This is what anxiety feels like. I am experiencing anxiety. And then I get to take it a step further. That's a story I'm telling myself. The chemicals of anxiety and excitement are similar So do I want to tell myself the story of anxiety or do I want to tell myself the story of excitement? Well, sometimes anxiety is there to let us know that there's incoming danger. Sometimes the anxiety is there because we're pushing ourselves out of our boundaries, out of our comfort zone. So that's such a key thing too, is like being able to push it. And as a coach, as you're coaching people through the process, that is another reason why I love to push for those increased numbers initially, because as soon as I'm not there, they're not going to drive themselves as hard as they could if there's somebody there watching and helping and assist them along. So if they've already known that like, yeah, I already did nine minutes, 
three minutes is no problem at all. I like so they that. already have the competence and confidence because they know that they achieved something that now they're setting their targets even higher that like, you know what? I did nine minutes with you. I'm, I made it to seven minutes and I'm, I'm actually doing really good. I did good today because I made seven all by myself. But if I set them at two minutes as a starter, then they're like, I got 45 seconds today. That's it. Oh, dang it. You know, that's really interesting. I like that. So it's still playing to the physiological, you know, that story that we're telling ourselves and the empowerment of this practice. You can do this and you're developing that physical muscle memory of I've been here. I know I've done it, so I know I can do it again. Yes, and I feel like it's such a valuable avenue for somebody to go beyond the threshold of the burn. When that skin burns, and if you get out when your skin is still burning, your entire memory that you've just locked into it is that like, holy shit, that was uncomfortable and that hurt the whole time. Uh -huh. After you fatigue out to the point that you numbed out and that you're not uncomfortable anymore, you're just like, oh, it's just kind of chilly, but I don't hurt. Then they're exiting on that high note that like, wow. And it takes them that much faster to get into that avenue where the brown fat kicks on and they start to feel that warm. And the memory isn't of the burn, it's of how good they feel immediately exiting the bath. See, and now, now I've, I've guided thousands of plunges. I've, I've been doing this for a few years now. And I do find that everyone's experience is different. Yes. Everyone needs something just a little bit different. And of all of the people I've guided, two, to this day, two, got out and said I would never do that again. I feel good, and I would never do that again. Two. Yeah, and it's it's wild. And that's, again, that's why I like to get them over that initial harsh part so that, you know, they have, they exit on a higher note. Uh, because if like, if I finish at two minutes, then the next time I go in, I'm still apprehensive. You're like, oh, this is so tough, it's so hard the whole time, but after you fatigue out and you numb out, you're like, this is easy. That, that is also why when I'm guiding and you get, get out of the tub, you stand, I guide you into power pose. Yeah. So power pose is a pose. You guys have heard me talk about this before. It's actually called arms akimbo. I think that is the neatest name for anything. Arms akimbo. But they call it power pose because when you stand, hips wider than feet or feet wider than hip distance apart. Hands and fists on your hips with your thumbs pointing behind you, chest out, shoulders back, chin up. If you stand that way for two minutes, you can induce chemicals that create calm and confidence in the brain. I learned this through the book, What Everybody Is Saying by Joe Navarro. He was a behavioral and FBI body behavioral analysis specialist or something like that. And I do remember his name and the title of the book because this is a powerful one for me. And so when you step out of the ice bath, you stand in power pose, you regain your breath and within about two minutes your body starts to regulate your breath is regulating and you're creating those chemicals of calm confidence so I do not allow you to curl into yourself I do not allow you to reach for that towel right away I do not allow you to take the body language of someone in a state of fight-or-flight and I think that creates also a physical muscle memory of an experience of empowerment Very. Brian, this was so rad. So rad. So rad. I feel like we could talk for days about healing and growth and medicines and sharing it with people and the experiences around that. But I am going to put a pause on it for now. I have a feeling we'll get to take this up again soon. I'm definitely looking forward to a round two. Will you share with our audience where people can find you? 
So you can find us on Instagram at cell.regen. Cell Regen is uh, uh, my company. Uh, and uh, you can uh, message us through there. Um, if you'd like to contact me directly, um, you, my email is drbriancall at gmail.com. And that is Brian with a Y. So D-R, no period, B-R-Y-A-N-C-A-L-L at gmail.com. Feel free to drop me a line. I'll, I'll respond back to you. Uh, no, no problem. You can drop us a line on our social medias as well. Uh, feel free to, to, to click follow and interact. Uh, we love uh, uh, interacting with our uh, um, subscribers and our patients. So thank you guys very much for listening and having me on the show. It's been nothing but a pleasure. Always the best being associated and being around the Morozco family. Just some of the best people on the planet. You guys have found the right place. And I do want to tell you, if you want to visit Re Cell Regen, they are in Hood River, Oregon, which I'm hearing just in droves today that this is one of the most beautiful places and we all need to take a visit. So, it really is the truth. Yeah. So I also want to say you can always find me at, at Adrian underscore Jezik on Instagram, at Marotsko Forge on Instagram, www.marotskoforge.com, and you can also find us at info at .com. Thank you guys for listening. Send in some questions, send in your feedback, share your anecdotes and stories. We are working on building, growing this community, and sharing knowledge, and we can't do it without you. Stay cool, cold friends. Thank you for joining us today and holding space for the challenges of becoming well. Healing is a practice, and it requires patience. You can find more information on the benefits of deliberate cold exposure on our website, marotskoforge.com. You can also find me on Instagram at Adrian underscore Jezik and at Marotsko Forge. Check us out on the Marotsko Method Network on Mighty Networks, where we share all things related to cold, health, and aging optimization. And remember, this is what cold feels like.